set free And Lord give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor Jim Jarrett Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. uh, Take your Bibles, remain standing, and turn, if you will, to James chapter 4, as we continue through this little epistle. Won't be much longer, Lord willing, and we'll finish the epistle of James, and so uh, to complete the entire New Testament... I still have Luke, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. And so uh, I would encourage you or ask you to to pray that the Lord would guide and direct as far as what uh, he would have us to go through next. And by that, I don't mean if your favorite book is Ephesians, you pray, Lord, make him teach Ephesians, but rather, Lord... Guide and direct the pastor to what you would have us to hear at this time. So I would appreciate your prayers very much. This morning we're back in James, James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 is our text. So if you'll follow along as I read now, beginning in verse 11. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. I want to begin with a story that I came across in my study this week. They were, a, they were a happy little family living in a small town in North Dakota. And even though the young mother had not been entirely well since the birth of her second baby, they, was a, they had a wonderful marriage. Each evening, the neighbors were aware of a warmth in their hearts when they would see the husband and father being met at the gate by his wife and two small children. And There was laughter in the evening, too, and when the weather was nice, father and children would romp together on the back lawn while mother looked on with happy smiles. But then one day, one day, a town gossip started a story saying that the father was being unfaithful to his wife, a story entirely without foundation. But eventually... It came to the ears of the young wife, and it was absolutely more than she could bear. And reason left its throne. So that night, when her husband came home, there was no one to meet him at the gate, no laughter in the house, no fragrant aroma coming from the kitchen, only coldness and something that chilled his heart with fear. Down in the basement, he found the three of them hanging from a beam. Sick and in despair, the young mother had taken the lives of her two children and then her own. And in the days that followed, the truth of what had actually happened came out. It was a gossip's tongue, an untrue story, and it all led to a terrible tragedy. And that tragic story graphically illustrates the havoc and the devastation and destruction that a slanderous tongue can have. James has had a lot to say about the tongue in this epistle because he's very concerned about what happens when Christians open their mouths. In fact, he is so concerned that he speaks about the use of the tongue no fewer than six times, and he does so more strongly than any other New Testament writer. In fact, he deals with our speech in some way in every chapter. Chapter 1, verse 19, he said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. In other words, you need to restrain your mouth and listen carefully and attentively, giving the word time to sink in before you speak. 
We learn while listening, not while speaking. And so we need to keep our mouths closed so our minds will be ready to hear. Chapter 1, verse 26, he said, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. His point there is that our speech is a reflection of what is inside of us. And so a religion that doesn't transform the heart and thereby bridle the tongue is totally worthless in God's sight. In chapter 2, verse 12, James warned that we are to speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In chapter 2, verse 14, James warned about a faith which consists of words only, not backed up by a life of good works. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In chapter 3, James warned that even though the tongue is a very small member, it has the capacity to cause immense harm. He said in chapter 3, verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he said, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. A few things in our lives do more damage than our tongues. They are powerful instruments that can be devastating, destructive, and deadly. In fact, you could say that our tongue is our own personal weapon of mass destruction. He spoke about the inconsistency of the tongue in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, where he said, With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And the idea there is there should be no place in a Christian's life for this kind of duplicitous speech. It's not only inconsistent, it is sin. In chapter 5, We'll see you later. James will call for his readers to keep their speech reverent and honest. He says there in chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And now in our text this morning, James returns to the use of the tongue, giving a command for believers to restrain their tongues from evil judgmental speech. You say, well, how does this passage fit into the overall context? Well, after addressing the two types of wisdom, worldly and godly, in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 6, James deals with the havoc caused when worldly wisdom, rather than heavenly wisdom, dominates the life of believers. And this worldly wisdom, James tells us, manifests itself in three, at least three ways. First of all, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, James tells us, or told us, that it manifests itself in the lust or the sinful passion and desire for pleasure and personal gratification. And we looked at those verses over two Sundays, so I'm not going to go into what we covered this morning, but if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go on our Facebook page and listen, or go to sermonaudio.com and type Calvary Chapel Reading into the search bar, and the sermons will come up beginning with the most recent, and you can listen to them there or download them for free to listen to later. And I would encourage you to listen to those. And now in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James tells us that worldly wisdom manifests itself in speaking evil of fellow believers. And this no doubt contributed to and had been a part of the quarrels and fights mentioned in the first part of the chapter. And James here is really echoing the teaching of Jesus as well as that of Paul in warning against slander and judging, which sadly appears to be a problem endemic to the church and the Christian community. And in these verses, James warns against evil, slanderous speech, and he gives us the reasons why. So let's begin now by looking at verse 11. We see, first of all, the command, which is short and to the point. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. More literally, do not be speaking evil of one another, brothers. And the present tense tells us, this evil was a habitual practice among believers in the churches James was writing to. And the Greek word translated do not demands that it be terminated. So James commands them to cease. He demands they immediately stop speaking evil of one another. The Amplified Bible says do not speak evil about or accuse one another. 
Other translations like the NS or the NIV and the uh, Legacy render it "do not slander." The Greek verb translated "speak evil against" appears only here, and in First Peter two twelve, where it's translated "speak against," and in First Peter three sixteen, where it's translated "slander." Noun forms of the word are translated slander in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, 1 Peter 2, 1, and, and slanderous in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul lists it as a characteristic of unbelievers who have been given over to a debased mind. Of course, slander means maligning someone or damaging their reputation by sharing faults or deliberately misleading information about them. And slander strikes at people's dignity, defames their character, and destroys their reputation, which is their most priceless worldly asset. And the Bible has much to say about slander. The Old Testament denounces the sin of slandering God or men more often than it does any other sin. The New Testament also condemns slander. Jesus said it comes from an evil heart. Matthew 15, verses 19, and the first part of verse 20, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Paul commanded the Ephesians and the Colossians to put it away, you know, to get rid of it, get it out of their lives. Peter also commanded his readers to put it away. Slander is a terrible sin, a sin that originated in the Garden of Eden with Satan, whose other title, devil, means slanderer. There in Genesis 3, uh, verses 1 to 6, when he tempted Eve, uh, he slandered God's character and God's integrity and, and motives. And so, as one commentator said, the very first act of slander in human history led directly to the first sin. You know, God hates all sin. But there are a few sins that are constantly and strongly condemned by Scripture. Judging others, condemning, criticizing, backbiting, gossiping, speaking evil, and talking about others is one of the sins that the Scripture never lets up on. And there's a reason for that. Slander is a very serious sin. But the term James uses here goes beyond just speaking slanderously about someone. It literally means to speak down on or to speak against. It's, it's much broader than slander and it forbids uh, far more than, than simply slander. I mean, slander often implies in English that the things said are untrue, but the Greek word doesn't imply this. So what does speaking evil against another mean? Well, it includes questioning legitimate authority as when the people of Israel spoke against God and against Moses in Numbers 21. It includes slandering someone in secret, bringing incorrect or unsubstantiated accusations, willful false accusations, exaggerating faults that are real, needless repetition of real faults, slander defamation of character, and what we call smearing another's good name or character assassination. It's every statement that is made with the purpose of belittling someone or tarnishing his reputation, and it encompasses everything from half-truths to out-and-out lies to veiled innuendos, unfounded criticisms, and exaggerated opinions, and even includes true statements when these are told only to tear down or hurt the person about whom they're made. In other words, what you're saying may be true, but the reason you're sharing it is to put the other person in a bad light and to make yourself look good. And so the command here forbids any speech, whether it is true or false, that is harsh, critical, derogatory, demeaning, condemning, that is maliciously intended to run down another person, harm their reputation, and to influence others against them. And the evil is not only in what is said, but in the speaker's hostile intention, which is aimed at demeaning the position or character of the one spoken against. 
It's an activity related closely to the work of the devil who is the slanderer. One commentator wrote, Certainly no Christian should ever be a party to slander, making false charges against another's reputation. Yet some do. But even more penetrating is the challenge to refrain from any speech which intends to run down someone else, even if it's totally true. Personally, he said, I can think of few commands that go against commonly accepted conventions more than this. Most people think it's okay to convey negative information if it's true. We understand that lying is immoral, but is passing along damaging truth immoral? It seems almost a moral responsibility. But by such reasoning, criticism behind another's back is thought to be all right as long as it's true. Likewise, denigrating gossip, of course it's never called gossip, is okay if the information is true. Thus many believers use truth as a license to self-righteously diminish others' reputations. Related to this, he said, some reject running down another behind his or her back, but believe it is okay if done face to face. These persons are driven by a moral compulsion to make others aware of their own faults. Fault finding is to them a spiritual gift. This destructive speaking down against others can also manifest itself in the subtle art of minimizing other people's virtues and accomplishments. After being with such people, your mental abilities, athletic accomplishments, musical skills, and domestic virtues seem not to be quite as good as they were a few moments earlier. Satan, who is the father of lies and the slanderer, has a field day with these particular sins, especially among believers in the church, because an uncontrolled tongue is one of Satan's most effective tools in undermining the church's witness in the world. And James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Brothers, he says. A couple of thoughts here. First of all, after strongly rebuking them earlier in the chapter for being adulteresses and double-minded, James returns to calling them brothers. This does not indicate a change of audience. It simply marks the words of a pastor reminding his flock that despite of his strong words of rebuke, he hasn't given up on them. Though they were seriously misguided and desperately in need of repentance and a changed lifestyle, they were still fellow members with him in the family of God. And secondly, you'll notice James uses the word brother or brothers three times in verse 11, and at the end of verse 12, he uses the word neighbor. And there's a reason for the repetition. The repetition is meant to remind them and us of the family relationship we share with other Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members in the family of God, sharing a relationship brought about by Christ's sacrificial uh, atoning death, his burial and resurrection. And as Christians, we have a living faith in a common Savior. We are co-equal members of the family of God. And none of us has the superiority which makes talking down possible. We are brothers and sisters bound together in the love which is supposed to manifest itself in mutual care and concern. The love that sees a need and then reaches out to meet it. And this is who we are in Christ and, and we are to act accordingly. I mean, there's a deliberate emphasis here. James is emphasizing the fact that this is your own brother you're speaking evil of. Brothers and sisters in Christ should have a deep affection for one another. We're to love, support, and protect one another. And this is what makes this sin so serious and so repugnant. It's against our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus' sobering words of warning in Matthew 18.6 tell us the seriousness of speaking evil of other believers. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. I mean, slander is a very serious sin which God both hates 
and will judge. I mean, as Christians, we expect evil speaking and slander from outside the church. I mean, we expect that. We should expect nothing else from the world. But we should not expect it from within the church. I mean, it is far more painful and and devastating when we have to endure it from our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are many sinful reasons why brothers and sisters in Christ speak evil against one another. It could be for revenge over some slight, real or imagined. It may come from a sense of pride and and self-righteousness that will stop at nothing to tear someone down and, and to elevate oneself. You know, it makes them seem a little bit better, at least in their own eyes. It it adds to their own pride, ego, and self-image. Like the Pharisee who thanked God he wasn't like the other sinner or even like this tax collector. Sometimes people do it because they simply enjoy it. There's a sinful, perverse tendency in human nature to take pleasure in hearing and sharing the bad news and shortcomings of others. Still, for others, it makes them feel that their own lives, their own morality and behavior are better than the person who failed. Others may rationalize their own decisions and behavior by pointing out the failure of others. For others, it makes them feel good because they think their brother's failure proves how strong and spiritual they really are. Sometimes it simply comes from too much empty talk. As Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And when people don't have much to talk about, sometimes they fuel the fires of conversation with the failure of others, whether real or supposed. And I really, I suppose there's no end to reasons and motives for speaking evil of one another, but bottom line, it comes from the heart. As Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual life, theft, false witness, and slander. So those who have a problem with the tongue in reality have a problem with the heart. It's a sin issue. A sin issue that originates in the heart and then is manifested with their mouth. And I think it's safe to say that no sin has brought more damage to the body of Christ than this sin of speaking evil against a brother or a sister in Christ. Because it destroys fellowship, alienates friends, creates division, sows strife and discord, all things which God hates. Things which are an abomination to God. I mean, how many reputations have been ruined? How many churches split, families divided, relationships destroyed, and ministries shattered because of this sin? I mean, can we even begin to count the number? And tragically, this kind of sin is so common that we very easily slip into the attitude that it's no big deal. I mean, we've grown so accustomed to it that denigrating a brother or sister seems to be one of those respectable sins that's become commonplace in the church and among Christians. But despite our seemingly casual attitude toward it, speaking evil of another Christian is a very destructive sin. And James commands his readers and and the church in every age to stop it. Just stop it, he's saying. Don't do it. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he says, the one who speaks against a brother. I'm going to stop there for a moment. When James says the one, it could be translated anyone. So the one or anyone who speaks against a brother. And those who know the Greek well say the way this is written indicates that their evil speaking is characteristic or habitual. So it doesn't, it's not referring to an occasional slip of the tongue, but to habitual slipping, to constant criticizing and judging. You know, it's like someone habitually watches uh, another who is a brother in order that they might criticize him. Look back at verse 11. James says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So now he adds something else into the mix. Closely associated with the sin of speaking evil against a brother is that of judging or being judgmental. 
And so after commanding his readers not to speak evil against one another, James also commands them to stop judging their brother. The word judges does not refer to evaluation, but rather to condemnation. It means to judge as guilty. It means to condemn. And so the thought shifts from speaking evil against a brother to the condemnation of a brother. And it's virtually impossible to speak against another person without falling into the trap of judging him. Because when you speak evil against someone, in effect, the one slandered is then condemned, presumably for whatever it was he was slandered for. And we may pass our remarks off as simply the expression of our opinion, but the truth is we're passing judgment on another person. We actually judge them as being guilty. Who cares about the facts? The fact of the matter is no individual believer in the church is in any position to rightly judge the true spiritual condition of another. Because we cannot judge others where only God can judge. Because God alone can judge the heart, the motives, and intentions of men. James' warning reflects the warning of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, where he said in verses 1 through 5, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Apostle Paul had strong words for this attitude and action in Romans, where he wrote in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So this whole idea of judging and condemning someone is very serious. And it's very important that we understand what James is and is not saying here. James is not saying that we eliminate all discernment, evaluations, and judgment. In Matthew 7, the passage I just read, Jesus is clearly not saying we should never judge, but when we do judge, we need to avoid doing so without a pharisaical, better-than-thou legalistic attitude. Perhaps a better word for what Jesus affirms is right or righteous judgment, as he called for in a few, a few verses later in chapter 7, where he said in chapter 7, verse 24, uh, do not judge by appearances. Or excuse me, in, jo- in John 7, uh, 24, he said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, or righteous judgment. So James is not saying do not show discernment in the church, but rather don't take God's place in passing judgment. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, we're to do a spec check before we do a saint critique. Check the sin in your own life before you ever think about going and correcting someone else. James is not forbidding confronting those who are sinning with their sin and calling them to repentance. It is the church's responsibility to confront and discipline those who are guilty of error and in sin, rebuking those who persist in unrepentant sin. And those who refuse to repent after private warnings are to be rebuked publicly before the church. And if that continues, then according to Matthew 18, then they're to be put out of the church and to be treated like an unbeliever. As believers, we must sometimes exercise discernment in relationships. Proverbs 20.19 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. We're responsible also to admonish and correct one another. 
Paul said in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And you can go anywhere in the Bible and find prophets, apostles, and preachers making moral judgments and condemning sin and calling people to repentance. James himself is doing so right here. He's confronting fellow Christians about their sins. But here in our text, James is not concerned with how the church deals with the member who's wandered off into sin. But later in chapter 5, verse 19, he recognizes there is a place for admonishing, rebuking, and correcting a fellow believer. But rebuking and correcting someone because of love is quite different from speaking evil against them, slandering, judging, and condemning them, which are all usually caused by different motives, namely pride, jealousy, and ambition. So James does not mean that we should never denounce sin, error, discern and judge false teaching, or or call out fellow believers who are in sin, calling on them to repent. That's not what he means at all. I mean, if we see someone living in adultery, we have firsthand information about that. We see that happen. It's not judging them to, to tell them, hey, you're in sin. You're committing adultery. Or to see someone in a homo- uh, who is a homosexual. It's not judging to say, hey, that is sin. You need to repent. But there's a, there's a huge difference between loving confrontation for the purpose of restoring and building up and condemnation for the purpose of just tearing someone down. So what kind of judgment is forbidden? Well, judging others while refusing to deal with your own sin. Rashly judging others without knowing all of the facts. Judging others unmercifully by failing to assume the best. Judging the unseen motives of others. Judging others for their opinions on non-primary doctrine. Harshly judging others for their minor faults. You know, judging people by writing them off when they let you down. Another way we judge wrongly is by judging others in matters of conscience. In other words, in matters that are not addressed by Scripture. When we go beyond the Scriptures, you know, we are treading on very thin ice because we are judging based on our own opinions, preferences, and or traditions and not on the Word of God. And almost every indictment the Jewish leaders made against Jesus was based upon their expansion of the law. In other words, their traditions and not the law of God itself. James prohibits wrongly judging others in matters of conscience. What James is forbidding is judgmentalism. A critical and condemning spirit often motivated by pride that judges everyone and everything to run others down. And those who judge in this way are self-righteous, lacking grace, and they have forgotten God's mercy to them. And judgmental people are often jealous and, and insecure. And now in the second half of verse 11 and in verse 12, James gives us a couple of reasons we should not speak against evil, why we should not speak evil against and judge our brothers. First, in verse 11, because in doing so, he says, you're actually setting yourself above God's law. Look back at verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James' reference to the law probably refers to the uh, the law of God in general, but in particular, what he had earlier described as the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark 12, 31, Jesus summed up God's requirements with regard to man's personal relationships with the exact same words. 
Paul underlined the point that in this one principle, the entire law is summed up. He said in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the law says we should love one another. In other words, we are to act and speak in a way which will bring about the other's blessing and their welfare, their good. But when we speak evil against a brother, when we slander and judge him with a critical and condemning spirit, we are actually speaking evil against the law, which is meant to bring about the exact opposite. We're doing what the law specifically prohibits. We're breaking the law and, in essence, setting ourselves above it. I mean, James is saying that the person who reads God's law of love and then deliberately disobeys is virtually saying that God's law doesn't apply to them. That the law is not worth obeying. That they are actually placing themselves above the law rather than under it. And when we do that, we are setting ourselves up as knowing better than the law. We, we judge the law. In effect, we say that the law is mistaken in commanding love. And if we were lawgivers, uh, we would have commanded criticism. And so what we're saying, bottom line, is that we know better than God. We are presuming to know how to modify God's law for living and make, make them even better. We're actually claiming to have a better standard of judging people than God does. We're saying God's word no longer expresses the correct values and principles because we know what's correct. You know, we're the, we're the judges of, of what is truly correct and right. And so we take up a new position, not as a doer of the law, not as a doer of the word, but as a judge. Look back at the last part of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But he says, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, what you do when you judge others, you are judging the law and in essence have excused yourself from accountability to God. You have made yourself a judge of what is right or wrong instead of obeying God and doing what His Word says is right. One commentator said such a person becomes a judge of the law and sits himself outside and above the law. Thus the law is not kept, but is disdained. When we judge our brother, we are sitting in judgment of God's law. And when we willfully sit in judgments of God's law, we are not ourselves doing it. Rather, we are arrogantly not submitting to it. And if that is not bad enough, secondly, James tells us, now that the man who judges the law and sets himself above it also sets himself above God. And that's the absurdity. That's the arrogance and the madness of this. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. James' point here is very similar to uh, his first point. Not only do we set ourselves above the law itself, but in essence we are setting ourselves above the one who gave the law. We're trying to usurp God's authority. I mean, it's the epitome of pride, and it's exactly what Satan attempted with his infamous five I wills in Isaiah 14. This is a serious offense. In our country, it would be the equivalent of treason. But because it's against God, this arrogant treason is of cosmic dimension. C.S. Lewis said that the sins of the flesh, like sexual immorality, aren't nearly as serious as spiritual sins such as this. He said that when we take pleasure in putting people in the wrong, bossing others around, patronizing people, backbiting and gaining power, we are setting ourselves up against God. He concludes, that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, he said, it's better 
to be neither. When we think for one moment that some part of God's law or his word does not apply to us, and that we can get along just fine without obeying it. We are setting ourselves above his word. And in doing so, we are demonstrating a rebellious nature. And we are also setting ourselves above God, thus challenging his very authority. And listen, loved ones, when we challenge God, we are in great danger. I mean, how utterly absurd. It's absolute madness. For as James says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The Greek text literally reads, one is lawgiver and judge. Stressing that God alone, God alone is the sovereign ruler and judge of the universe. The one lawgiver and judge in Jewish theology is the Lord himself who gave the law through Moses and who one day will judge all the people of the earth. I mean, he stands at both the beginning and the end of redemptive history. His justice is both the standard of and the motivation for obedience. The word translated lawgiver appears only here in the New Testament. It refers to one who puts the law into place. The word translated judge refers to one who decides, the one who makes decisions based on examination and evaluation, and the one who then applies the law. So James unequivocally declares that God and God alone is both the lawgiver and the law applier. He gave the law, and he will judge men by his law. And only God, because he knows the hearts and motives of men, can perfectly apply the law that he has given. I mean, God alone is the ultimate source of all law and authority. Not only that, James says God is the one who is able to save and to destroy. I mean, this is a a sober reminder of God's sovereign capacity to save and destroy. A truth that is repeated many times throughout Scripture. God alone is the one judge who has the power to save or destroy, for he alone has the absolute power of life and death. And he is able both to save those who place their faith in Christ and to destroy unrepentant sinners. That is how he applies his law. The angel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said he came to seek and to save the lost. The apostle Paul wrote that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The writer of Hebrews declares of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But for those who refuse to repent, for those who reject God's gracious offer of salvation, God will destroy. And the word translated destroy means to destroy utterly, but not to cause one to cease to exist. As it relates to men, it is not speaking of loss of being per se, but the loss of well-being. So it does not refer to annihilation, but to eternal destruction in hell. And this, of course, is why Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but can kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, to save and destroy summarizes God's sovereign power. I mean, this ability belongs to God and to him alone. And so James' argument then goes something like this. It is wrong to speak evil against a brother or sister and to judge or condemn them, because judging is God's business, not ours. When we speak against and judge our brother or sister, we are playing God. We are also playing God by judging his word because when we do, we are setting ourselves above it. And when we set ourselves above God's law, we are actually setting ourselves over him who is the one lawgiver and judge. God alone is the lawgiver. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. And when we judge our brother or sister, we completely lose sight of our proper place in God's scheme of things. We are setting ourselves over others and over the law, and that is extremely arrogant. 
In fact, it's not only arrogant, it is blasphemous. And this alone ought to seal our judgmental, demeaning lips for eternity. All of Scripture testifies to the fact that the eternal destinies of all men are in the hands of God. And so who are we to strut around picking and choosing which parts of God's law we're going to obey and speaking evil against and passing our arrogant judgments on other people? As one man said, is there not something pathetic about people who act as if they have a personal responsibility to put the world straight? Do we think that we can take God's place? I mean, sure, we can judge external sins to be sins. But even then, it's only imperfectly. I mean, we certainly do not know what is in the heart of another. God, however, knows everything, every word, every thought, every deed, and every motive. Nothing escapes his eye. And when the Lord comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. But we have no business whatsoever judging what only God can judge. And those who speak evil against, those who slander and and pass critical judgment and condemnation on others manifest the fact that they have a very exaggerated view of their own importance. And there are a lot of people in churches today who have an exaggerated view of their own importance. And so in a stinging rebuke, James closes this section with a searching, penetrating question. Look back at verse 12. But who are you? But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James turns the spotlight away from others and puts it full force on those with the judgmental spirit. And I want you to note the great and glaring contrast. God is the one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. But who are you? And the emphasis of the Greek is, but you. Who are you to be condemning your brother, your neighbor? The Amplified says it well. But you, who are you that you presume to pass judgment on your neighbor? The idea is, who in the world do you think you are sitting in condemnation of someone else? In Romans 12.3, Paul exhorted the Roman believers, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And then in Romans 14.4, he demanded in words similar of James, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will, he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Speaking evil against, slandering, and judging others is the antithesis of the humility James commanded his readers to manifest before the Lord in verse 10. Humility that is manifested by those whose lives are full of godly wisdom. But worldly, double-minded Christians are not humble, and they don't control their tongues, and they speak evil against, and they judge and condemn. James says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And the obvious answer is, I'm a fool to judge my neighbor. Because I have wickedly and wrongly claimed for myself the knowledge and authority that only God has. And rather than focusing my attention on loving and obeying God's law, I have nitpicked others' obedience and jumped to conclusions about their conduct and their motives. I have not loved, but rather I have slandered and judged. But who are you, James said? It is the absolute height of arrogance to judge others because the right to judge belongs only to God because only God is qualified to judge because only God has all the facts. And if we have difficulty simply interpreting men's conduct, you know, their actions, and we do, then we certainly cannot read their hearts. And yet we rush to all sorts of judgments about the motives of others and even about their eternal standing before God. 
Oh, God help us. But James says, before you write somebody off and think for one moment that God is more pleased with you than with him, remember the seriousness. Remember the somberness of what you're thinking and saying. And then ask yourself just how justifiable your words and actions are, are in light of God's word. Not in light of your own opinion, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own intuition, but in light of God's word. I mean, someone might think that just being critical of a brother or sister or being a little judgmental is not all that serious, especially when compared to other sin. But the Bible sees it as a serious sin. In fact, one of the worst sins. Because speaking evil and judgmentalism is, number one, self-exaltation above the law, and even worse, it is self-exaltation above God. So it's a terrible sin. Because it breaks the law of love and it tries to usurp God's authority. As we saw in chapter 3, the tongue is is a small but devastating weapon. It is full of, of deadly poison, James said. And we should never ever minimize its danger and, and its devastating effect. And the person who judges assumes God's role, and setting yourself up as a judge leads to conflict, quarrels, fighting, divided churches, and broken relationships, to name only a few. But humbly submitting to God and His Word and obediently seeking to love and build up others leads to harmony and and restored fellowship. So before we ever pass judgment on others, We ought to look in the mirror of our own identity. Because when we do, we will see there's plenty of sin there. Plenty of shortcomings and guilt for the very failure we see in others because our sin always looks so much worse on someone else. And the reason we recognize those things in someone else is because they're present in our own lives. So when we look in the mirror of our own identity, we'll see there's plenty of sin, plenty of shortcomings, plenty of guilt for the very failures we see in others. And we'll also see the personal need for God's mercy and grace. And if we don't, then that's a very serious problem as well because that speaks of an unregenerate heart. So the next time you're tempted to speak evil or to run down someone or or judge them, remember James' pointed question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then go and judge yourself according to God's word because that's the standard. A couple of ways for us to guard against these kinds of behaviors is first of all to remember that speaking evil, slander, critical, judgmental, condemning speech begins in the mind. It's something that we say to ourselves long before we ever say it out loud and pass it along to others. We commit the sin in our minds before we commit it outwardly. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, aren't we? It's a battle for the mind. So what we need to do is fill our minds with biblical truth and attitudes. And then love for our brothers will begin to root out our critical, condemning, judgmental speech. And consideration for our brothers and sisters will begin to replace the hurtful and arrogant words by helpful, caring, and loving Christian concern. And secondly, we need to learn the difference between our opinion and God's commands. But it's important that we think about why we're saying something. I mean, what's the motivation for what you're about to say? Are you about to pass judgment on another person because you don't like what they're doing? Or are you seeking to correct and restore them in a spirit of gentleness because God doesn't like what they're doing? They're in sin. 
Are you judging someone's motives, which of course you cannot possibly know? Are you seeking to elevate yourself? You know, are you trying to appear spiritual and righteous? I mean, these are the questions that we need to ask before we speak. And once once we've answered them, we may find that the best thing for us to do is just keep quiet, just zip it and not say a word. The way we speak about another, to another, or about another is an indication of the spiritual health of our heart and a good test of how well we have submitted to God. And so if you go around blabbing your mouth uh, and doing so in contradiction of God's word, His commands then you have not submitted to God. You know, you may have been on the receiving end of someone's evil, slanderous, critical, judgmental words this last week. And so you know all too well how how much pain it can cause, how hurtful it can be, how destructive it is. And so let me challenge us all to work at reversing this trend this coming week. We cannot keep ourselves from being the object of someone's evil speaking, their slanderous, critical, judgmental, condemning words and remarks. We cannot control uh, what people say or what people do. And there are just people who do these things. We can't control that. But by the grace and strength that God supplies, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you and I can sure keep ourselves from doing it to other people. Can't we? And if we do that, won't our lives, our marriages, our families, our relationships, and our church be all the better for it? Yes, it will. Yes, they will. And so may God work these things in our lives. May we not be among those those who speak evil against the law, speak evil against their brother, and seek to usurp God's authority. But rather, may we be those whose lives are dominated by godly wisdom. May we be among those who humble themselves before the Lord so that he will exalt us. Amen. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Run.